The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to a special Easter edition of The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. The Triumph of Easter by Dorothy L. Sayers. Oh, Felix Culpa, said Augustine of Hippo rather dangerously with reference to the sin of Adam. Oh, happy guilt that did deserve such and so great a Redeemer. It is difficult, perhaps, to imagine a pronouncement that lays itself more open to misunderstanding. It is the kind of paradox that bishops and clergy are warned to beware of uttering from the pulpit. But then, the Bishop of Hippo was a very remarkable bishop indeed, with a courage of his convictions rare in highly placed ecclesiastical persons. If spiritual pastors are to refrain from saying anything that might ever, by any possibility, be misunderstood by anybody, they will end, as in fact many of them do, by never saying anything worth hearing. Incidentally, this particular brand of timidity is the besetting sin of the good churchman. Not that the church approves it. She knows it of old for a part of the great, sprawling, drowsy, deadly sin of sloth, a sin from which the preachers of fads, schisms, heresies, and antichrist are most laudably free. The children of this world are not only, as Christ so caustically observed, wiser in their generation than the children of light, they are also more energetic, more stimulating, and bolder. It is always, of course, more amusing to attack them than to defend. But good Christian people should have learnt by now that it is best to defend by attacking, seeing that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. St. Augustine, anyway, seeing the perpetual problem of sin and evil being brought up and planted like a battery against the Christian position, sailed promptly forth, like the good strategist he was, and spiked its guns with a thanksgiving. The problem of sin and evil is, as everybody knows, one which all religions have to face, especially those that postulate an all-good and all-powerful God. If, we say readily, God is holy and omnipotent, he would interfere and stop all this kind of thing, meaning by this kind of thing, Wars, persecutions, cruelties, Hitlerism, Bolshevism, or whatever large issue happens to be distressing our minds at the time. But let us be quite sure that we have really considered the problem in all its aspects. Why doesn't God smite this dictator dead is a question a little remote from us. Why, madam, did he not strike you dumb and imbecile before you uttered that baseless and unkind slander the day before yesterday? or me, before I behaved with such cruel lack of consideration to that well-meaning friend? And why, sir, did he not cause your hand to rot off at the wrist before you signed your name to that dirty little bit of financial trickery? You did not quite mean that? But why not? Your misdeeds and mine are nonetheless repellent because our opportunities for doing damage are less spectacular than those of some other people. Do you suggest that your doings and mine are too trivial for God to bother about? 
That cuts both ways. For, in that case, it would make precious little difference to his creation if he wiped us both out tomorrow. Well, perhaps that is not quite what we meant. We meant, why did God create his universe on these lines at all? Why did he not make us mere puppets, incapable of executing anything but his own pattern of perfection? Some schools of thought assert that he did, that everything we do, including Jew-baiting in Germany and our own disgusting rudeness to Aunt Eliza, is rigidly determined for us, and that, however much we may dislike the pattern, we can do nothing about it. This is one of those theories that are supposed to free us from the trammels of superstition. It certainly relieves our minds of all responsibility. Unfortunately, it imposes a fresh set of trammels of its own. Also, however much we may believe in it, we seem forced to behave as though we did not. Christians, surprising as it may appear, are not the only people who fail to act up to their creed. For what determinist philosopher, when his breakfast bacon is uneatable, will not blame the free will of the cook, like any Christian. To be sure, the philosopher's protest, like his bacon, is predetermined also. That is the silly part of it. Our minds are the material we have to work upon when constructing philosophies, and it seems but an illogical creed whose proof depends on our discarding all the available evidence. The Church, at any rate, says that man's will is free, and that evil is the price we pay for knowledge, particularly the kind of knowledge which we call self-consciousness. It follows that we can, by God's grace, do something about the pattern. Moreover, God himself, says the Church, is doing something about it, with our cooperation, if we choose, in despite of us, if we refuse to cooperate, but always steadily working the pattern out. And here we come up against the ultimate question which no theology, no philosophy, no theory of the universe has ever so much attempted to answer completely. Why should God, if there is a God, create anything, at any time, of any kind at all? That is a real mystery, and probably the only completely insoluble mystery there is. The one person who might be able to give some sort of guess at the answer is the creative artist, and he of all the people in the world, is the least inclined even to ask the question, being accustomed to take all creative activity as its own sufficient justification. But we may all, perhaps, allow that it is easier to believe the universe to have come into existence for some reason than for no reason at all. The Church asserts that there is a mind which made the universe, that he made it because he is the sort of mind that takes pleasure in creation and that if we want to know what the mind of the Creator is, we must look at Christ. In Him we shall discover a mind that loved His own creation so completely that He became part of it, suffered with and for it, and made it a sharer in His own glory and a fellow worker with Himself in the working out of His own design for it. That is the bold postulate that the Church asks us to accept, adding that, if we do accept it, and every theoretical scheme demands the acceptance of some postulate or other, the answers to all our other problems will be found to make sense. Accepting the postulate, then, and looking at Christ, what do we find God doing about this business of sin and evil? And what is he expecting us to do about it? Here the church is clear enough. 
we find God continually at work turning evil into good, not, as a rule, by irrelevant miracles and theatrically effective judgments. Christ was seldom very encouraging to those who demanded signs or lightnings from heaven, and God is too subtle and too economical a craftsman to make very much use of those methods. But he takes our sins and errors and turns them into victories, as he made the crime of the crucifixion to be the salvation of the world. O Felix culpa, exclaimed St. Augustine, contemplating the accomplished work. Here is the place where we are exceedingly liable to run into misunderstanding. God does not need our sin. Still less does he make us sin in order to demonstrate his power and glory. His is not the uneasy power that has to reassure itself by demonstrations. Nor is it desirable that we should create evils on purpose for the fun of seeing him put them right. This is not the idea at all. Nor yet are we to imagine that evil does not matter, since God can make it all right in the long run. Whatever the Church preaches on this point, it is not a facile optimism. And it is not the advisability of doing evil that good may come. Oversimplification of this sort is as misleading as too much complication, and just as perilously attractive. It is, for instance, startling and illuminating to hear a surgeon say casually, when congratulated upon some miracle of healing, Of course, we couldn't have done that operation without the experience we gained in the war. There is a good result of evil. But, even if the number of sufferers healed were to exceed that of all the victims who suffered in the war, does that allay the pangs of the victims, or any one of them, or excuse the guilt that makes war possible? No, says the Church, it does not. If an artist discovers that the experience gained through his worst sins enables him to produce his best work, does that entitle him to live like a beast for the sake of his art? No, says the Church, it does not. We can behave as badly as we like, but we cannot escape the consequences. Take what you will, said God, according to the Spanish proverb. Take it and pay for it. Or somebody else may do the paying and pay fully, willingly and magnificently, but the debt is still ours. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. When Judas sinned, Jesus paid. He brought good out of evil. He led out triumph from the gates of hell and brought all mankind out with him. But the suffering of Jesus and the sin of Judas remain a reality. God did not abolish the fact of evil. He transformed it. He did not stop the crucifixion. He rose from the dead. Quote, then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and departed, and went and hanged himself. And thereby Judas committed the final, the fatal, the most pitiful error of all, for he despaired of God and himself, and never waited to see the resurrection. Had he done so, there would have been an encounter, and an opportunity, to leave invention bankrupt. But unhappily for himself, he did not. In this world, at any rate, he never saw the triumph of Christ fulfilled upon him, and through him, and despite of him. He saw the dreadful payment made, and never knew what victory had been purchased with the price. All of us, perhaps, are too ready, 
when our behavior turns out to have appalling consequences, to rush out and hang ourselves. Sometimes we do worse, and show an inclination to go and hang other people. Judas, at least, seems to have blamed nobody but himself, and St. Peter, who had a minor betrayal of his own to weep for, made his act of contrition and waited to see what came next. What came next for St. Peter and the other disciples was the sudden assurance of what God was, and with it, the answer to all the riddles. If Christ could take evil and suffering and do that sort of thing with them, then of course it was all worthwhile, and the triumph of Easter linked up with that strange, triumphant prayer in the upper room, which the events of Good Friday had seemed to make so puzzling. As for their own parts in the drama, nothing could now alter the fact that they had been stupid, cowardly, faithless, and in many ways singularly unhelpful. But they did not allow any morbid and egotistical remorse to inhibit their joyful activities in the future. Now, indeed, they could go out and do something about the problem of sin and suffering. They had seen the strong hands of God twist the crown of thorns into a crown of glory, and in hands as strong as that, they knew themselves safe. They had misunderstood practically everything Christ had said to them, but no matter. The thing made sense at last, and the meaning was far beyond anything they had dreamed. They had expected a walkover, and they beheld a victory. They had expected an earthly Messiah, and they beheld the soul of eternity. It had been said to them of old time, No man shall look upon my face and live. But for them a means had been found. They had seen the face of the living God turned upon them, and it was the face of a suffering and rejoicing man. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.